Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. A couple of three or four or five things I need to talk to you about before we turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis and talk about Uncle Noah. And uh, we had, after vacation Bible school, we had to bring the piano back over here and get it tuned again. And, And I don't know who the thief is, but if I catch you, you're in trouble. Somebody stole a string off of the piano. Now, now, the only way that I know that anybody's ever used one of those is to hang somebody with. Actually, a preacher was hung by piano strings by the Nazis in the Second World War. So I've always had a little bit of discomfort whenever you talk about stolen piano strings but anyway it's it's fixed and that's done two or three two or three people that i want you to keep in mind i noticed lisa sparks was here this morning she's i want you to continue to keep her in prayer about some physical things that she's having that uh, has been ongoing for some time and it just wears you down but she's kept a wonderful attitude and then uh, Susie Riddlebarger told me that she's going to have a double mastectomy pretty soon, but they had to postpone it because Mark got COVID, so they're stuck for a little while. But anytime you mention cancer to anybody, there's a degree of discomfort and fear that's associated with it. So keep those folks in your prayers, please, and there may be others. I want to thank the guys that went out and helped Alice Kay with the Johnny and Friends thing this past week. These are people who come from all over the Midwest who have handicapped children. We helped them get in and helped them on Saturday uh, or Friday or whenever it was uh, come back, get their cars loaded and get going, and they need help. you need to know that my first wife had a wreck the other day. She got T-boned, and now we're carless, so I'm bumming off of my grandchildren, and I kind of enjoy that. But uh, she has some serious discomfort on her left-hand side. The policeman said he thought it was probably related to the seat belt, you know, when she got hit pretty hard. And um, But anyway... She's surviving well enough to aggravate me from time to time, so I think she's doing okay. And for those of you who ordinarily come on Saturday night, this coming Saturday night, we're going to have supper again. After church, they, we go back and, and have a carry-in supper, and that, work, <clears throat> that works out pretty good. So those of you on Sunday morning, if you ever find a good cook and want to do the same thing, the more free meals I get, I like is the better so for what that's worth and I want to wish everybody here uh, well I got one other thing on your sermon out excuse me on your sermon outline in your bulletin you really need to use those this morning and if you need a pen or a pencil 
to fill in the blanks. We'll try to keep those back there. there we usually we've had a bunch back there. We can go get some more if you need them. Um, I, I want you to pay pretty close attention because uh, there's lots of things about Noah, or at least some things about Noah that that people don't know. I, I asked several questions to people this past couple of weeks, and I was surprised um, <clears throat> that uh, some of the things they didn't know that I thought they knew. The reason, the other reason, is on the sermon outline that you have there in your bulletin. Ordinarily. From now on, the insert that you have in the bulletin about the young people is supposed to match up with, to a degree, with what the sermon does, so that both the parents in here and your students will have something to talk about on the same subject. I didn't get the insert, and I had the sermon outline done before I got the insert, but from now on, we'll try to do a better job of matching those things up a little better. Now I want to talk about you pappies. This is a this is Father's Day. <clears throat> and Father's Day I believe is something that we need to as a nation, as a people, elevate to almost number one importance. The number of homes in our country now that have an absentee father is really high and getting worse all the time. It is my opinion, I can't prove it, and I've got some really smart people who think that I'm a little squirrely about it, but I think they're equally as squirrely, so it doesn't bother me. I I actually believe that the rise in homosexuality, to a degree, is related to the absence of fathers in homes where little boys can actually see and experience what they're to grow up to be. And little girls can see what a man should be and and so on. And when they grow old old enough to pick a man, and yes, the women pick them. Men live with the false concept that they do the picking, they just do the chasing. The women do the picking. And women... If there's a daddy in the home who's loved that little girl and cared for her. Because there is a special relationship that often, most often exists between a daddy and his daughters. That really needs to be. For the sake of the entire family. And we need to work at, consciously work at, developing a nuclear family. Which means, now listen to me because this is where the cheese gets binding. We have a tendency, and girls, you're the, since you're the pickers, you have a tendency sometimes to see some good-looking hoss, real stud muffin, a lot like myself. And now that wasn't funny. You guys picked, you guys picked the wrong things to laugh at for some reason or other. But anyway. The Bible is very clear about that, but we're generally ignoring it. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, you should look for a Christian to marry because you have the same set of values. It actually says it in this 
terminology. Be ye not unequally yoked together, believer with unbeliever. And um, that's a contributing factor. So if you want to have a man that loves God and will be faithful to you, you better find one who loves God and is faithful to him. It works better that way. I believe that the deterioration of the family unit is the primary problem that our country is suffering through in this day and age. And so I, I think you need to give it serious and prayerful thought. Daddies, be good, be good daddies. By that I mean include in your life your commitment to God and demonstrate it both to your wife and to your children and to your grandchildren and in my case, great-grandchildren. They need to see Christ in us. And then they'll know what we're talking about. Now, you brought that subject up. I didn't, I didn't make this Father's Day. Somebody else did, but it just happens to be something I feel strongly about and I wanted to take a few minutes to talk to you about it. The text that we have today will, will lead us to discuss some things that you probably haven't heard for a long time, even though it's central to the New Testament we're going to talk about, and so I want to review it a little bit, how God spared Noah. And he really did. He just spared him. The Bible says in this King James terminology, uses it this way, that Noah, and there's a song about it that us old-timers know, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The word grace means unmerited favor. And since... He uses that term that Noah found grace. There was included in that, even though it isn't stated out in, in so many words, it, it implies at least strongly that Noah was a sinner. And, 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 and otherwise he wouldn't have needed grace. So he found that favor. And, and then the Bible says some really good things about Noah. One is, it's, it says that uh, here in, in verse 9 of chapter 6, it said he, he was a righteous man who walked with God. Now, righteousness in the Old Testament and righteousness in the New are a little bit different. It, it kind of evolved into something more specific in the New Testament. Righteousness in the Old Testament meant that Noah was faithful to the true and the living God as opposed to all of the other gods that surrounded them. And there were a bunch of them. And we'll see that demonstrated in a few minutes. So he, he and it actually said the same thing that was said of Enoch and others, that he walked with God. Now in the Bible, the word that's translated walked with God simply means that God was a dominant influence in his life. That's true in the New Testament. It said, you know, that we walk in the Spirit. It means that the Spirit of God is the dominant influence in our life. And so that's what he's talking about here. Then in at least two instances here, it said, it complimented Noah. 
because most of the people were not faithful to God, didn't even give him a time of day. But Noah, when God spoke to him and said, I want you to do thus and so in the construction of an ark. And by the way, if you haven't been to the ark project, south of Cincinnati, you go down to Williamstown on 75, and just when you first get past Williamstown, it'll be on the right-hand side. That's really impressive. And when you first get and see that big old sucker sitting there, that thing would go from one end of our parking lot to the other. It's 450 feet long, high, and it's, and it's beautifully done. And it is built to scale, as the Bible illustrates it here in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. It was 450 feet long and, and 45 feet wide. And did you know that the, our Navy still uses the percentage of width and length in the construction of our naval vessels? I just found that kind of interesting. Now, it says that Noah did, in verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And that's, that's repeated again in chapter 7 and verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. So he was obedient to God's revealed will. In some other areas, he had some flaws like all the rest of us. When he told him to build an ark, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take seven pairs, listen to me carefully, Seven pairs of clean animals and birds. And I want you to take two pair of the unclean animals. And like, well, why would you do that? Well, number one, the clean animals he could kill and eat. And the birds, kill and eat. And after the waters receded, Noah built an altar, and offered a sacrifice. And he could only offer sacrifices of clean animals, or they wouldn't be accepted by God. So he took seven of the, those that were pronounced clean here in the book of Genesis, and only two pair of those who weren't. And I was interested, and I've asked several people in the last two or three weeks about that, and I was shocked at the number of people who said, well, he took two of each. Well, he didn't. He took seven of the clean Seven pairs of the clean. So get that in your head because I'm not above asking you again. Now, in spite of Noah's resume here about doing what the revealed will of God was when, and telling him what to do and especially in who should go in the ark because actually what God is doing here is he's beginning all over again. Actually, if you and there's a very interesting parallel between the creation story in the opening chapters of Genesis and the story of Noah and the ark here in the 7th, 8th, and ninth chapters. At creation, you had three sons mentioned as the children of Adam and Eve who played a prominent role. They were Cain, Abel, and Jephthah, or Seth, rather. And Noah had three sons, Ham, Sham, and Jephthah. They were, Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, were brought into the ark of safety and survived. 
Now, in spite of all of this good stuff that was going on and God choosing him, and he still had a problem. After he, after he was, the, the water receded and he built an altar and offered a sacrifice, he got drunk as a skunk. He was lying in his tent, naked as a jaybird, and soused. He had a problem with booze. Now, I'm going to get into trouble with some of you beer drinkers. But it's trouble I welcome. Because in my ministry in years ago, and I started preaching when I was 17, I was dumb in a box of rocks, but my college president said, this little church down in Kentucky doesn't have a preacher in years near nothing as I know, so you go. And so I stayed with them for a while. And, and uh, in the ministry that I had all through these years, alcohol, until recent years, alcohol has been a far bigger problem than dope. Recently, dope. But the number of families that were destroyed, and my family's full of it on my father's side. Uncle James was a drunk, got into a fight, got himself all cut up. And he was the dancing drunk when he, you know, he was an entertainer. And he and Uncle Red used to have a place down on the, on the Licking River where they made their own. And a funny story, but I think it's the truth. They were, all, they were testing their own product. And they were already, as I say, pickled. And they found an old black snake and they started pouring some of their booze down that old black snake. And their wife rang the dinner bell and they went to eat and when they came back, the snake was dead. And they'd been drinking that stuff all day. Just give you a hint. Now you can take from that anything you want to. I thought it was a funny story when the way it happened. But I'm telling you, people defend, I have a book that was written by a prominent preacher who just died a couple of years ago. He was a Calvinist, and I argue with the Calvinists a lot anyway. They believe whatever will be, will be, whether it happens or not. That's clever. You'll have to wrestle with that a while. But he wrote this book on why beer was a good thing. And he completely left out the 14th chapter of the book of Romans. The book of Romans says this. Anything that you eat, drink, or do that is offensive to a newborn Christian, you should avoid. Actually, the scripture says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, you'd be better off to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown in the pond. Literally, he wasn't meaning that. He was simply saying, this is how serious this is. We need to be aware of how our life affects other people. Because the only Jesus a lot of people will see is the one they see in you and me. And so in the early church, the context of that was in the early church, there were many converts that were one from pagan religion. And in the pagan religion, they would take their animals to sacrifice on the altars. And then the, the meat that was left over, the, the pagan priest would take downtown to a meat market and sell it for a profit. In spite of the fact that they were told that 
spirits entered the meat, and then they ate the meat. Well, that probably wasn't true, but they had been told that in their pagan religion. Now they were one to Christianity, and the Christians, being tightwads that we are, would go to that meat market because it was cheap and buy it and take it and eat it. And here's this poor guy who'd just been one out of that pagan religion saying, Christians are eating that deviled meat? I guess that's why they call it deviled ham. Now that's clever. Are you awake? You know. But anyway, that pro- and so the, the Apostle Paul said in, the, in, in Romans, he said, it is better for you to be a vegetarian than to insist on eating that meat and causing a weaker brother to stumble. The same thing is true with alcohol. Years ago here at church, there was a man that started attending here. We'd helped his kids who had drug problems, and his wife finally had a Methodist background, and, and that, that, was, that was not real solid, but because he didn't participate as he should have, came here because we were helping his kids. And he had gone out to the country club and played golf, and after they played golf, he got snookered. And I talked to him about it. I said, your witness is terrible. And, uh, yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with a beer after hot and sweating, playing golf, blah, 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 blah. I said, okay, let's do this. Next time you go play golf, invite me. I will play with you. You buy the beer, and I'll help you drink it. Is that okay? He said, I think I would be offended by that. And I said, just as I'm offended by what you're doing. Your witness is lousy. We need to be conscious of that in the way that we behave ourselves on a daily basis. Our testimony is important to the cause of Christ. Now, with that behind me, and Noah brought this up because he got drunk. I wouldn't have said anything about it, hadn't been for that old drunk. Now, let's quickly take up your, your, your sermon outline and follow me. It's interesting that because I was talking about the booze and the preacher, that here in, the, in Second Peter, in the New Testament, in the second chapter, verse 5, Noah is identified as a preacher. Here's what it says, verse 5. If he, meaning God, did not spare the angels in the, in the ancient world when he brought the flood on the ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness... Noah was a preacher who liked booze. Now that, when I grew up, I would have found that unusual. But Matthew, when he was practicing law with a group of lawyers in Scottsdale, Arizona, that helped churches and pet folks, pro bono, which means free, invited Alice Kay and me to go with him to Hawaii for a meeting there. Now, it's hard to turn down a meeting in Hawaii. So uh, we went, suffered for Jesus, and went. And, and they had a dinner in the basement for all of us who were pastors in a church. Alice Kay and I were there. I don't know how many preachers were around the table with their wives. And did you know when they brought the wine list as well as the other stuff. Did you know that she and I were the only ones there who didn't drink? 
I was shocked. And so I got myself in trouble when I asked this one guy that I actually knew, did you ever read the 14th chapter of the book of Romans? And he said to me, this is not the place to discuss that. And he was about 6'2", and I'm 5'8 and a half, and I didn't figure it was either. But you got the picture. I find it indicative of the, of the fact that the church's influence in our world today is substantially less than what it would be if we were a little more serious about practicing our faith on a seven-day-a-week basis. Now, actually, in the eyes of the people at the time Noah lived, he had a good reputation. If you go back over to the book of Genesis here where in the 6th in the and 7th chapter where we're looking at verse 9, here's what, it, here's what it said. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people. So he had a good reputation in spite of the fact that he had flaws. Why? Because the culture of his day was so decadent that it didn't take much to look good. He had a good reputation. And he, and he walked with the living God. That's what it says here. And as I've already mentioned, he was obedient to God's revealed will. Now, with that said about Noah, let's look at the circumstances of the world at the time Noah preached and built the ark and all the problems that were associated with it. I put on your outline there that society had gone to hell in a handcart. Well, I think I said on a skateboard. Why did I say that? Now, let's just look at the text because that's where we get our information. Number one was in that culture, evil was accepted as normal. Evil by that, I mean just terrible things. That was accepted as normal. Here in verse 5, what does it say? And the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination and thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. The situation was critical, and when you go, and this was repeated, and in the Bible, when God repeats things, he does it for emphasis. And, and if you go to verse 11, in that, <clears throat> in that same chapter, it says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become and that all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So the, the, the society of his day, when God chose to exercise judgment, wipe it all out and start all over again, was in the eyes of God evil beyond redemption. Get that. We at times think, well, nobody's beyond help. Yeah, yeah, you can. You can get beyond help. Now, that's not pleasant to discuss in our society where everybody's viewed as good anyway, which is a crock. At the same time, marriage was a mess. When you look carefully here, starting at, at, uh, at uh, verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 6, it says, And when men began to increase in number on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. 
same problem we have today. We have a problem, I personally think, as I've already said, the biggest cultural problem we have today is the deterioration and the breakup of, of the nuclear home. And that's because marriage is not a big issue anymore. I know it sounds crude to say, but shacking up is common. Even in churches. Even in churches. I think I told you of a church out in Phoenix. This guy, it was a church of a couple hundred people, and the preacher had guts. God bless him. He actually said, look, for any of you who are living here today together without the benefit of marriage and say that you don't have the money for an apartment, we'll pay for your apartment. We'll actually come and get you and move you into that apartment. Do we have any takers? Guess what? Zero. And it was accepted in the culture. Well, that's okay. They're, they're together. Marriage was a mess. Violence in Noah's day was a daily occurrence. I'm talking about wicked, harmful violence. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become and all the people on earth had been corrupted in their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. What are we talking about here? We're talking primarily about people who saw who, who saw whatever was out there they wanted as theirs. You see, selfishness is a primary sin of humanity. Overcoming selfishness is the greatest problem all of us have. There never was any such thing as an unselfish child. It's mine. Give me it. And in nurseries, we have to deal with it all the time. Grabbing somebody, they bring a toy, grabbing a toy away. That's, that selfish stuff is built into us, and Christianity exists for the purpose of helping us overcome selfish so that we view the other, pe other person as important as we are. That doesn't come naturally. That takes the presence and power of the Spirit of God, and there isn't anything of more importance. Nothing. And so violence comes as a result of us saying, you know, I want this property. Ahab and Jezebel dealt with that. I want that. I want this. I want this. It's, it's that selfish nature of saying, I'm the center of everything that's important to me. And, and husbands and wives suffer from this all the time. Who's going who's gonna to be the head honcho? My mother-in-law thought Alice Kay should be. I thought I should be. That was not an easy thing to overcome. And at times I wonder if we have. That's supposed to be humorous too. You guys have no sense of humor at all. None at all. Now, the other tragedy thing that existed in Noah's time was that religion was as corrupt as it could possibly be because it was all centered in religion existed to benefit the priesthood of the pagan world. 
And when and 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 as a result of that, he did some things that will almost turn your stomach. The people did things that almost turn your stomach when you saw how corrupt they were in order just to benefit the priesthood. We've got just enough time for the next few minutes. I want you to watch real carefully because it isn't pleasant and it isn't easy to watch. But this will show you how corrupt the religion of that day had become. When the Israelites came here, the Canaanites practiced a fertility religion. Let's just refer to it as Baal worship. Uh, Ahab was the king. He began to be drawn into Baal worship as his father had been. And he married a woman from Phoenicia named Jezebel, who was a priestess of the Baal cult of her town, which is in Phoenicia. Her father had been a, a follower of Baal. She came here and brought her Baal worship with her. Now, we know from history that her form of Baal worship, the Phoenician form of Baal worship, was particularly a radical form of Baal worship. And as she brought that Baal worship to this part of the country, it very much became a part of the Baal worship in this part of the land of Israel and very soon was being practiced by the Israelites, including Ahab and Jezebel. Baal worship went like this. They believed that Baal was the god, the god of fertility. He was often portrayed as a god of thunder and lightning, sometimes on the back of a bull or on the back of a calf with a lightning bolt in his hand. You get that whole sense of the storm and of lightning and of thunder and of rain that would bring fertility. And he went back to the underworld, a place that was very dreary, very dark, uh, not a particularly attractive place, and the land would begin to lose its fertility. Then in the springtime, or so it was hoped, Baal would come back to life and he would return. What they believed brought Baal back to life was the offering of blood. And if Baal returned to life and had relations, sexual relations with his consort, his mistress Asherah, that relationship would produce fertility. She would be brought out onto a place like this and in front of the worshipers gathering as you would gather in church, I guess you might say, would observe the sexual intercourse right here on this platform because they believe that by having intercourse between priest and priestess of Baal, you could possibly encourage or seduce Baal and his mistress Asherah to have intercourse in some sense. And out of that relationship between Baal and Asherah would come the fertility of the land around. You know, one of the names that the Canaanites gave to Baal was Baal Zavul. And Jesus comes along not too far from here and he takes that word Beelzebub and he applies that word to the devil himself. He calls him Beelzebub. Now, I would like to suggest that Jesus is by that saying that what was practiced here, places like this, in Jezreel, here, in Samaria, in Jerusalem, even unfortunately at Dan, maybe at Bethel too, was the Old Testament form of Satanism. But in the middle of this high place, this huge mound of stones here, which probably had a covering of beaten clay of some kind, so the top was flat, in the middle of this high place would be an idol, would stand in the middle with a roaring fire built inside it. Now, the name the Bible uses on occasion to describe that altar or that idol is Tophet. And then those mothers who followed the practice of this particular cult would hand the baby to the priest. And the priest would climb the stairs of the high place and approach the altar in some position of worship and would take that baby and would lay the baby on the red-hot arms of that idol. 
almost very difficult even to think about or to describe. Um, some of you have small children. Some of you are first sons. The people would gather to do that, including, the Bible tells us, King Manasseh, King Ahaz, and other kings in Judah who actually sacrificed their children in the valleys outside of the city of Jerusalem, somewhere near the temple. Now, in retrospect, as you look at that, you think about the fact that really what they were doing is saying, we so much want Baal's blessing of fertility, of personal, physical things that I need, my crops, my animals, that they were willing to offer the life of a child for personal, financial, material success. I think the culture we live in is remarkably similar because it seems to me that what defines to a large extent the culture we live in is on the one hand the cheapness of human life. We practice abortion and we take the life of an unborn child 29 million plus times already, often simply because of the inconvenience of the child for financial reasons. There isn't anything that I have seen or that I know of that describes the corruptness of the religion of that day and how violent it is and was. There isn't anything that I, that I could dream of that could, and, and, and you needed to know, it seemed to me, that how terribly decadent the culture of that day had become, and God said it's beyond redemption. When you look carefully here at verse 3 in chapter 6, he said, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal and his ways are bad. God says that when mankind becomes beyond help, I will execute judgment. And that's exactly what he did. He, he said in, 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 in verse 13, uh, to repeat it, he said, So God said, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, even their religion. And so God said, Enough is enough. And he saved this handful of people to start all over again. He made a way of escape. Now, the Bible always teaches that in, in times of judgment, God makes a way of escape. Our way of escape is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and trusting Him and loving Him and living for Him. And in a decadent world, it shines like a city set on a hill, Jesus said. It's easily seen and very influential. God always finds a way of escape, and I've given you the passages of Scripture for that. The ark was the way of escape for Noah and his three sons, his wife and their, their wives. Our way of escape is through faith in Jesus. Now, 
What I'm asking you here at the conclusion of what we've been talking about is this. Are we, in this day and age, testing God's patience again? The Bible, and I want you to listen to this because I didn't make this up. This is what the Word of God actually says. This is in the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew, and it's in red. Jesus is talking. He says in verse 37, As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. When the days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. So what they were doing was, what he's really saying here is that the circumstances in that day were such that people were so busy they just didn't give any attention to the will of God. And the result is when God is ruled out of the picture, and we have at times... I don't, many of you weren't here, but right after 9-11, I preached a sermon saying, I believe, this is my opinion, that God who had protected us for many, many scores of years lifted a hedge from, above, from around us and saying, if you don't want me here, then live with a culture when I'm gone. And in our culture today, isn't it true that the things that we talked about in the days of Noah is already here? I said evil was accepted as normal. And I can make you a list of things that our culture yawns and blinks about. That are, the Bible says it's flat-out evil. Marriage is in a horrible mess. We've already said living together is common without the benefit of marriage. The number of children that are born out of wedlock is approaching 50%. And our government is encouraging it by saying, look, if you have kids, we'll send you enough money to live on so you don't have to go to work. Even after a lot of the, the legal stuff had passed away, it is still legal. If you have three kids, you'll get X amount of money every month. If you have four, it'll increase. They're actually paying people to have babies and stay at home with your tax money and mine. I resent it. Violence in our culture today the government yawns at. We've had cities in Seattle and Portland that were taken over by Marxist people and kill cops, kill the they burnt down their buildings, and we did nothing. What I'm saying is, on a week in, in Chicago, a dozen or 15 are murdered on a weekend, and that's not the only one, Baltimore, other major cities. Murder is accepted as, oh, that's the way it is on the weekend. 
I'm telling you that the violence of Noah's day is here today. Now the question is, the question is, are we testing God's judgment again? Religion in our day is prime. Who are the religious people that get the attention? They're the individuals who have made millions of dollars and have jet airplanes that go flipping. I mean, personal owned jet airplanes that go flipping here, there, and everywhere. And live a lifestyle that only the priests of the Old Testament era could afford on the backs of poor people. One guy said, well, I can't help it. I wrote books and I'm worth $45 million. There isn't any reason in the world why he can't give that to the, the ministries and the people who need it. Jesus said, if you're going to be my follower, and I think he was talking about preachers as well, except you deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Instead, we say, wow, he's successful. Look how good he's doing. And it's an abomination to the kingdom of God. So what I'm putting before you is this. In the discussion in the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus is talking about his coming again to exercise judgment on the earth. Oh, we've developed a bunch of silly stuff about millennialism that said, oh, he'll come and he'll take some of these people out. That's not what the New Testament says. It doesn't say that at all. He says that when people are not looking for him, he's coming. Just like in the days of Noah, they were busy just living their life and ignoring the will of God. And folks, we're approaching that today as a culture. Just watch your TV and look at the silly little telephones you carry around with you all the time. Jesus actually said it like this. When you think not, when you think not, and you give no consideration to his will, he will appear as a thief in the night would come. And he said, you know, if you knew ahead of time, the thief, you would not let the thief in because you would prepare to defend yourself and defend your property. Not going to happen that way. He said, if, if the owner of the house had known at the time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. And he's saying, this is the way Jesus is coming. When everybody ignores him and nobody's expecting him, he's saying, so you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at the hour when you do not expect him. Verse 44, chapter 24. I haven't heard a sermon anywhere in the last two or three years on the second coming of Christ. Isn't that an indication that the circumstances are developing in which the Christ will come again? And he's saying, don't let people come and say, well, it might be this one, it might be that one. Don't, don't fall for that. Don't let anybody kid you. Because when Christ comes again... It'll be clear to everybody what's going on. As the lightning can be seen 
in the West, when storms are coming, so will the Son of Man be when He comes. The whole world will know. It'll be shaken to the foundations. The ark of salvation will be over and God will destroy everything by fire. Because he promised Noah, I'll not do it with water again. And the rainbow that we often see is, is a testimony to the covenant that he made with Noah. I'll not destroy the earth with, with water again. But he did say, and Peter, that, and, and folks, listen to me carefully. He didn't say who would light the match. And you and I are living right now within weeks of Iran having nuclear weapons and the, and the capacity to transmit them to us. Russia already has them. China already has them. Pakistan already has them. All of which can bring out a nuclear waste and the world will be destroyed by fire just as Peter said that God was going to do. We live in perilous times. But the good news is, there is a way of escape. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Him. Follow Him. Live for Him. Jesus is coming again. And what my message is to you today is it could be any moment. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for giving us warning ahead of time so that no one was without excuse of preparing a way of escape for that day when judgment is exercised in our world. And just as certainly as those little babies gave their life in the arms of a pagan idol, our entire world will suffer the same fate. Help us, O oh God, to escape that day by putting our faith in you and accepting Jesus as the Lord of our life. So we have nothing to fear. Thank you, Lord, for your word that gives us fair warning. We offer you our gratitude in Jesus' name. And all the people said, God bless you. You're free to go unless you're not a Christian. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.